E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Robert Bohr on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Very happy to be here. You're from Jersey originally? Yes, grew up in New Jersey, born in Rhode Island, grew up in New Jersey. What was your grandfather like? Oh, my grandfather's the most amazing person I know. Um, he's like the embodiment of the American dream. Son of immigrants, grew up working as a, as a welder, went into the service, into the Marines, World War II, fought in uh, Iwo Jima, amazing guy, came back, went to school to be a, an engineer, raised five kids well, Went to church every Sunday and every day during Lent and raised, uh, gosh, I don't know, 10 grandchildren. Just an amazing human being. Most, probably the most important, yeah, most important person that I looked to. What was he like to you? Oh, uh, it was great. He's still alive. He's uh, 91. He had just turned 91. My mom has four sisters and she was, she's the eldest. And so when she had her first child, which was my older sister, it was a continuous string of women. And so by the time I came along, he was pretty happy to have a, a grandson. And so I was, my mom gave this, this toast at our, at our wedding where I got gifts when I was young that maybe seemed inappropriate to most people like bayonets and walkie talkies and, and, you know, et cetera. But they were for me great. And I, I, I was the benefactor of a lot of a lot of love, a lot of generosity, a lot of great life lessons. I learned walking um, in, in Passaic, where he was from. We were we, uh, walking down the street, and he saw a guy sweeping the street. And he looked at the guy, and he looked at me, and he said, you see that guy sweeping the street? That guy knows more about sweeping the street than you'll ever know. So don't ever think that you're better than anybody. It, it's something that it's, you know sticks with you. when uh, Those life lessons are important. I think, uh, I think we all need to hear a little bit more of that. Guy, who are you as a kid? I mean, uh... <laughs> I was a clown. I was, um, you know, my older sister was or is uh, an overcheer, and so I felt like I had to get attention by being the smartass, the one who uh, acted out in school. But at home, my parents were—I wouldn't say strict—but they 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 had a strong belief that children had a place in the family 
that was to be respectful to elders. And so my mom said all the time that you can act like an animal outside of the house with your friends, I don't care, but when you're in the house or when people are over, you have company manners. And my mom would use that all the time, company manners. And so when I was around my friend's parents, they, they thought I was a wonderful, well-behaved child. And I was actually an asshole most of the time. And, um, but I, I, I really am grateful for my parents instilling that lesson of being respectful to your elders and, and giving credit for people to people for which they've done, which you may or may not understand at the time, but it's kind of a, a kind of a, a corollary to what my grandfather was saying about the street sweeper was that you may not know what these people are doing or how they got there, or who they are or, or, or not, but they're older than you and they've had different experiences and they've had more life experience than you have. So you have to give them some sort of respect, some deference. As it's, it's uh, probably a lot of people listening probably think I should continue that lesson these days, but, uh, I can see that playing out in restaurants, though. Come on. I mean, especially if you're waiting tables in Jersey, where oh, yeah. it's probably going to be a local suburban clientele, right? Very important. Um, and I think when I, was, when I was young, very young, in grade school, my relatives would come over. We have a pretty large family, and we all live very close to each other, so there would be a lot of family members over. And as soon as someone would come in, I would get up from my, my seat, and I would go, and I would their code or I would ask them if they would want something to drink. I knew everyone in my family's drinks. You know, my dad's mother would drink a highball and my grandfather would drink a scotch and soda and my grandmother would drink white wine and with ice. And usually we had a big jug of white wine that had been in the wine cabinet or liquor cabinet since the last time she was there, you know, not refrigerated, maybe a cork in it, but probably not or screw top. And, um, that's why you don't like orange wine right there. Exactly. Right there. <laughs> from the beginning. <laughs> And that notion of serving the people that came to our house and just, again, getting up for people, give, giving them your seat, thinking of your, yourself second as a child gives you a little bit of an understanding of what is necessary to be a good person in a restaurant, a good server, in short. And I think in order to be a good someone, you have to be a good server. So why did you pick restaurants instead of like mechanic or... You know, something hands-on. Yeah, it's hard, you know, because that's what everyone in my family really does. They're um, it's a great amalgam of blue-collar workers from plumbers, electricians, telephone guys, carpenters. Weekends around the house were always some sort of do-it-yourself project, either at our house or one of our relatives. And it was kind of all hands on deck. And so when I started working in restaurants, it was really a, an economic necessity. My mom said, you know, we had a fixed allowance for clothes for the year and it was not, not very much. And, she, you know, we, we in, integrated with the school across the highway, which was a much more affluent community. And everyone was wearing Ralph Lauren um, shirts. His polo shirts were big in the 80s. And, uh, and I wanted one. And my mom said, well, I'm not buying an $80 shirt. You're out of your mind. Right. If you, need, you think that that's what you want to do with your money. I had a paper to route at that time. She said, you, I said, I'm not, I don't make $80. To, you know, throwing newspapers before school in the morning. And so I got a job working as a, a dishwasher and a busboy at this local Italian restaurant called Villa Molise. And uh, it was a small family. And the two brothers were the cooks. The mother was the maitre d' host, manager, owner. And they had two daughters. And it was a family-run place. And it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about how to 
how to listen, how to get, how to get out of the way, how to avoid getting hot pans thrown at you. And, and, but more than anything, how to make people happy. But you felt that they liked you, the family. Yeah, I, I think they did. They, they, I spent a lot of time there. I, I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, yeah, how, you know, it was, a, as you said, it's, it was a small town and you saw a lot of the same people over and again. And a lot of them were parents of my friends from across the highway, the kids whose recent new friends in a way. And they were impressed that one of their sons or daughters, classmates was working nights. And, uh, like they would go home to their kids and be like, why don't you be like Robert? See, he's taking responsibility for his life. He doesn't ask for anything. They would be, and then the kids would say, yeah, you should see him in school. <laughs> Not a great student at the time. But it was, I, I learned a lot about, again, I think the thing about hospitality is, is more than the, the mechanics of service. It's, it's make, really wanting, having a genuine desire to make people feel welcome and feel good and happy about being in your restaurant. I learned, I learned that at an early age. And you worked for Danny Meyer kind of early in the career, right? Early in the career. After I, <clears throat> I worked for two restaurants in New Jersey while I was, I actually commuted while I was at NYU back to New Jersey because I couldn't get a, a job in New York City. Because Difficult. It, that catch-22 of New York experience, right? You don't have it, but you can't get it. And, and But I worked, so it was t- I would take the bus into New Jersey to work at this restaurant called Ecola. And I lived in Brooklyn while I was attending NYU. So it was a legitimate commute. But it was the only job I could, I could really continue doing. There was less restaurants back then. They weren't always looking for. Yeah, it was really competitive, and and um, there were a lot of pros. Say, you know, even though the the kind of the metier of restaurant wasn't what it was then, the people who were doing it were committed. I mean, they, they it was their livelihood. They were acting on the side, or they were an artist, or they were doing something. But when they were at work, they were solid, and uh, so there wasn't a lot of room for a a kid who had ambition to go to law school and work part-time while going to school and uh I, I luckily got i got i got a break uh by chance after i worked briefly at tavern on the green it only it was very very brief it was two months but the broke into the union thing pretty nice did it exactly the union thing was a little tough for me when i was told i couldn't help the the back waiters reset a table because that wasn't my job i, was, I had a hard time with that but the service director there said you know you really should go work where someone's going to appreciate what you do and he just come from gramercy tavern he put in a, a call that was nice, huh? That was a nice huge, thing. Huge, huge, huge. It changed my life, truly. One of the seminal moments of how I'm sitting in front of you is, was, was someone seeing that I actually cared and someone taking the time and consideration to think, where can this person succeed or excel? And he put in a call to a guy named Chris Russell, who was a captain at Gramercy, and Chris took me under his wing after I, I can't believe I, I actually was hired because I was incredibly obnoxious. And... uh they have a test of they did. I don't know if they still do multi-page test where you rate yourself on different skills and it's long form. And then there's ratings one to ten. Giving yourself elevens down the board. <laughs> no, it's like it was great. It's actually really smart because it's like longhand, so you're writing a lot of answers in the back. It's rate yourself on a scale of one to ten with plate carrying and wine knowledge and cocktail knowledge and beer knowledge and blah blah blah. And then the last one is penmanship. So it's like a great. <laughs> it lets them know how full of shit you are on the plate carrying techniques. But I, on it, I think I wrote my knowledge of like a six because, you know, I was in college and I spent about two and a half months in France and I'd spent a, 
So while we were there, it was great. NYU has these incredible programs where you could take day trips to all these different places like Loire and da, da, da. And so, and there's a lot of culture in addition to the language part of the NYU that you would learn a lot about the culture of French wine and how important it is, et cetera. And so we read a lot of books. We took some day trips. We went down to Avignon. It was just really great. Then after the classes in Paris, I went down to Lyon and stayed with a friend for a couple of weeks and we kind of tooled around and I got really, I was really interested in it. And um, it was funny. This was 1996. Yeah. And I was studying. I was really studying about wine at this point. And he, the service director started asking me questions like, what does Blanc de Blanc mean? I said, you know, I just told you I was just in France. It means white from white. And it means well, a champagne made from Chardonnay. And he gave me another, another question that was kind of like a layup. And I was like, oh, my God. I kind of rolled my eyes. He's like, all right, well, what are the grapes that comprise Amarone? I went, oh, shit, I don't know that. He goes, you shouldn't know that. Okay. Moving along. And I couldn't believe that after being that much of an asshole, I still got the job. But they put me in my place pretty quickly. It was a very competitive environment. All the front waiters were pros. The captains were mythical. They were, they were, there was very little on-site management. Everyone managed themselves, and there was a lot of... This is about a year after it opened, right? This, yeah, so yeah, they opened in 94. I think it went through a little uh, change in 95. Some of the opening team kind of came and left. And, and this was, Paul Greco was, was still a captain at the time and a complete prick, but really on it. He was the first person I ever heard say, I'm not doing this to do something else. I'm in it. This is my career. First person I ever heard say that. It was unbelievable. I, Cause I was going to school full time and I really had ambitions to go to law school. I, you know, I, I had a, I really believed that there was, there was something in law in, in public service, in government, in judiciary i really was really helping people back in the communities kind of i really believed you know even this was this was still 1996 97 i thought that the things that we're seeing now with marriage equality was something that i really felt strongly about back then i thought i was going to work for lambda legal defense or the aclu or something like that and so to hear someone who was really paul knew everything he was super on it to say this is my career this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my life it gave me pause. I, I, and I have to say the working for, and I use that preposition correctly, Danny Meyer, gave you the belief that it is a noble profession. Maybe not noble is the right word, but a legitimate profession, a profession that should engender some respect amongst your peers and ideally your, your parents. You wouldn't have to apologize for this profession. I thought up until then, yes. And seeing how a person of so many talents like Danny comported himself really thought, wow, that's a great role model. I think a lot of people, if they met him, wouldn't think less of me for working in his restaurant. And they definitely gave me some, some consideration. I felt like I was studying more to be a part of the team at Gramercy than I was to finish my undergrad at NYU. What was the wine side like? Wine was exciting because Gramercy had a dynamic wine program and it didn't focus on regions as much as kind of characteristics of wine. So it had full bodied reds or spicy reds or all these things that I th- now I think are kind of silly at the time. I thought it was a cool thing to talk about. And so we tasted wine every service before in our meeting. A lot of the times once Paul came on, we did it blind and it was a conversation. He called on people and said, what do you get out of this wine? What do you think it is? What would you serve it with? And where does it rank in the scale of quality? How much do you think this should cost? And you really, and you're on the spot and you had to, you had to be smart. And 
in order to go from waiter to captain, you had to know the wine program in and out. And so I would, you know, in between doubles, I would go to the Barnes and Noble on Union Square and I'd read like the books that I see on your shelf over here, all, you know, and I would just, I couldn't afford the books. So I would read the books, put them back on the shelf with a bookmark in it and go back the next day and read, you know, Wines of the Rhone Valley or Parker's Bordeaux or Cote d'Or and all these books. So I could hold my own in these conversations. I had a student's mind still at the time. So I was really, I felt I was able to absorb a lot of information. But you also felt you were being challenged. Like you had to step up. Oh, unbelievable. On everything. On food. Tom Clickie would come and say, all right. And you'd call on whoever and say, and you'd stand up and you'd say, all right, sell me the sweetbread dish. And you knew every, you knew what the soubise was made of and how long it was cooked and that the sweetbreads were poached. I can tell you everything on that menu today. This was 19 years ago because of the training that you had and that you were called upon to stand up, talk about the food, sell it, then give three wine pairings. What is the classic pairing? What is your favorite? And what is something completely off, off the reservation? And you had, to, you had to be fluent with sherry and port and Madeira and sweet wine and beer. And it was unbelievable. It was incredible education. Really great. The end of the night, this is back when you still got cash tips and you could you could get your cash at the night if you stuck around. Someone did the money. Sit around, you have a shift drink. Sell it shift drinks. It was amazing. And you got to raid Claudia Fleming's unbelievable dessert cart because she made all the desserts every day. And so whatever was left over was fair game because it was going to go in the trash. So you'd, you'd drink a couple glasses of wine, you'd eat 5,000 calories of sugar, and you'd get your cash. And then you were in New York City. And Set it was, loose. It was dangerous. <laughs> there were some bad corner bistro nights and all this crazy fun stuff. And some people I worked with, with back then, are still friends. Paul Greco being, you know, chief among them. I still see him. I, I was there when he met his then future wife, Katie. She was in, like an intern from Cornell, and people are really incredible people. And you had a connection with Paul, and he kind of let you help with the wines a little bit. Well, no, he was. Uh, uh, there were kind of people who were more interested in wine than food, and I was one of the people more interested in wine, and so. Inevitably, there were other captains who were really, really good at other things, cheese or something like that. And I would ask for their help with that. And if they were busy, they would say, hey, can you decant a bottle of blah, blah, blah for me? And Because there's no sommelier. There's no sommelier on the floor. All the captains did all the wine service. It was great. So Paul, uh, when he was a waiter, he was insufferable. He wouldn't even allow a manager in his station. And uh, then he became the assistant general manager and wine director. And he would come into your station and start telling you something. You'd be like, Paul, get the fuck out of my station. Who are you? Like, remember a month ago how much of an asshole you were? I'm that asshole now. Get out of my station. And he hated it because he was, he's super controlling, but he's right. Over time, he created a staff more and more that was less challenging, I think, than the people who were his peers and had to be, you know, work under him. Um, we challenged him. We, and Richard Luftig, who worked there at the time, would just felt so bad for Paul. Actually, I didn't at the time, but now I do because we would torture him. We'd be like, Paul, this one's corked. And, you know, we would, we would just be like throwing bombs at him every time he would, he would he'd serve us wine. And it was just, we were just jerks. But, uh, so no. But he, what he did do is he did do a lot of interactive wine classes for guests. And so he would have like Saturday lunch in the dining room, which was normally closed, French wine class or Italian wine class or something like that to go with cheeses. And even though I hate cheese, I really want to learn about wine. So Richard and I would be kind of his assistants during those days. And it was, it, it was great. I learned a lot with him. And, you know, Paul has a long family history of restaurants, so he brought a lot to the table. 
Paul was from an Italian restaurant, and Richard really liked Italian wine. Richard really and, and knew, and still, still to this day, one of the most knowledgeable person in Italian wine, probably wine in general. Guys, he was a big student, but yeah, he was really passionate about Italian wine. And when we left Gramercy, we had a brief stint working together at Oriol before we went, went into the Italian wine world, where I went to Babo and he went to Felidia. But we, you know, we tasted Sassacaya for the first time at Gramercy or Conterno or. Paul opened anything on the wine list was fair game. Anything, no matter how expensive it was. If he got a six-bottle allocation, he thought it was important for people to know what Sasakai was. He thought it was an important wine. Uh, I remember first tasting Araujo or Shav. It was just wines that, that at the time were things you read in books. And now it was something that was in front of you, and it was a great opportunity. So, yeah, a lot of our, I think, our, our good and our bad habits were formed there. You went to Babo after Oriel. Yeah, I never thought I was crazy. But I, I left Gramercy as a captain, was a food runner at Oriole, and I was making a ton of money, but it was blood money. It was like 11 shifts up and down stairs. It was treacherous. It's Richard Rutzay <laughs> running food up and down stairs that were recently mopped with like an oily mop. It was just the most crazy, the craziest thing. That's where I, thankfully, I got to meet Ned Benedict and watched him turn a few key phrases with, with guests and servers, which I, I'll never forget. And then uh, one of the captains from Gramercy Tavern, James Danos, was the general manager, recently hired general manager at Babo. And he called me. He was a very uh, strong personality. And he's like, I need you down here. And I was like, James, I don't know anything about Italian wine. I don't, I'm not a wine. He's like, you'll figure it out. You used to do all the wine service in my station. You got to come down. He was screaming at me. So I left this very lucrative. I mean, remember, Oriole, 1998, top of the Zagat, three stars, fancy, full to capacity. And everyone said, oh, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to work in this restaurant downtown called Babo. And they're like, you're going to go to a restaurant called Babo? What are you, crazy? You're at, you're at Oriole, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of the great captains from Gramercy left and went to Babo. Some of the people I really respected and, and, and liked working with. That guy made a few phone calls. He made a, yeah, he, he, he definitely padded the, the, the team. And I worked there and I, I really learned on the job. I, I devoured books on Italian wine. I took a trip to Italy, but really I, I learned by tasting, by meeting reps, by talking to winemakers. It was unbelievable. And it was the restaurant that they hadn't, didn't expect. Mario and Joe didn't expect the restaurant to become what it quickly became, I don't think. What do you um, think drew so many people down there? Mario had a small following at Poe, and it was a great, fun, busy restaurant, but his food was exciting. And he was turning people on to things that they never thought they could or should eat. Calves' brains or sweetbreads and lamb's tongue and all these crazy things. But with real aplomb, I have to say, he's one of the... I have so much admiration for that guy's technical ability. Mario's a real... Anyone thinks that he's just glitz and TV, or is, they're fooling themselves. The guy's a real talent. He's an incredible cook. I watched him kick people off their station and just crush service. He's unbelievable very nimble for a big guy, really, really, really gifted on the stoves. And he has a razor sharp understanding of all things food, all things Italian. You had three strikes. If you mispronounced something, if you didn't know the derivation or how something was cooked at meetings, he would call on you and he would ask you blah, 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 blah. And if you didn't know what cavatelli was or where it came from or what's this component or what's the key thing to it, what is harissa, the fiery peppery condiment from Tunisia? L verbatim, Mario. You're welcome. 
word for word, he demanded your attention. And he got it from guests, food writers. From a minute one, he was an incredible media attraction because that's a rare combination of real powerful intellect, incredible technical ability and charm and not giving a shit, playing really loud rock and roll music despite people complaining. And it got three stars. And it got three stars. Out of the gate. Unbelievable. I still remember going to Balthazar for the three-star party and one I had never been to Balthazar before because it was still relatively new and and it was like a it was a party. That's the other thing. You work hard and you play hard there. It was you could you could drink till five in the morning, you know, on the stoop outside Babo, and you wouldn't be looked down upon. <laughs> but that trip to Italy, I mean, that was that was the Alfredo Corrado trip. Was, yeah, that's where Luca Corrado's father, Alfredo, invited Richard and me. We invited Richard, and he, he brought me along to meet all of his contemporaries: Roberto Cantero's father, Giovanni, and Bruno Chicosa, and Pepe Rinaldi, and an amazing, an amazing day where I, where neither of us spoke Italian and none of these guys spoke English. And we had a great day where I think I learned more in a single day about Italian wine than I had in the three years learning about it before. So great. I'll never forget that day. So at Babo, are you starting to think, I mean, am I going to open my own place one day? I mean, what, what was going on in your mind at that time? Yeah, so I was at Babo while I was applying to law school. So I was fortunate to be mentored by the then dean of NYU Law, John Sexton, who then became president. He's kind of a famous guy, right? He's probably the, I mean, he's the smartest guy I've ever met. He's one of the most successful presidents in American universities, and now globally. He's you know, expanded the NYU campus around the globe. He's an incredible human being. And he took a shine to me when I was an undergrad taking his freshman honor seminar on the Supreme Court and the religious clauses of the Constitution, which is unbelievable because he was a Jesuit, married a Jewish woman. He has his PhD in theology and has this you know, JD from Harvard Law and can recite everything, but he has this texture and the class was amazing. And after class, he, uh, he would invite me back to his house to continue talking about the class and my future and what I wanted to do. He worked for the ACLU, so he gave me a lot of information about it. And, and, and he'd be like, I got to go tuck my daughter into bed, but we can have some coffee and we can continue the conversation. He was incredibly generous with his time. And when I graduated, I asked him to write letters of recommendation for law schools, which he did. And I'm assuming on really the power of his words that I get into law school. And uh, he lived in the building next to Babo. And he came in. He doesn't drink wine, sadly. So I didn't really, I was never really ever able to show him what I learned. But he saw how much I loved working in the restaurant business, how much joy I got out of being there, even though it was a very difficult experience. The hours were long and the job was very hard. But he saw it and he gave me advice that I would never take from any other person, I don't think, it was that you should continue to do what you love until you no longer love it. And that I always had a place at NYU Law School as long as he was involved. And uh, he told me that he didn't go to law school until he was 34. It's powerful when you're a 24-year-old person who graduated from college, which was not expected of me. I didn't, was not a very good student up until college. And he, I'm on the precipice of going to one of the great American law universities. And to be told not to, to continue working in the restaurant business is 180 degrees from everything you think is the advice a smart, experienced educator would give. Again, one of those moments, one of those moments, one of those seminal moments in your life. That sounds to me like another strong father figure in the uh, mix. Danny, Mario, Sexton. Sure. Sexton. So flash forward to my engagement, post-engagement with John. 
And uh, sadly, it's at his wife's funeral service. But this is a force of what a man John is. And he sees Jordan's engagement ring and says, oh, why are we talking about all this other stuff? We should be celebrating your obvious engagement. And he turned the moment away from the grief we felt and the morning we were in with him to the celebration of us. And Jordan had heard me talk about John at length, but didn't have the same connection with him in the number of times. But right after that, she said, do you think John would marry us? And I thought, I really have found the right one, you know, that she knew how much this man meant to me. And, um, and so John, in the end, was the efficient of our wedding in Aspen. He was, he, and to this day, is still a very close friend and, and person I, I, re, I really respect. So you took his advice and you stayed in restaurants? Kind of stayed on the Italian wine thing for a while. And I was, by chance, you know, in the, and again, one of the reasons why I'm here is because of that decision or that, you know, that kind of serendipity that I started in Italian wine and not in French wine. I started in French wine at that time. If you had a sommelier in your restaurant, you were a French restaurant. You were a French sommelier almost assuredly, and you're probably in Midtown. There weren't a lot of them. I was fortunate by just by happenstance to start in Italian wine, and there weren't that many people really focused in Italian wine at the time. So I kind of got to carve out a little specialty, a little niche in the business that if I hadn't, I would be competing with people who had a competitive advantage over me that I where I wouldn't have been able to shine. And I did Italian wine for a few years exclusively until I was asked by Jean-Luc Ledoux to be his assistant at Danielle, and we would trade knowledge. He wanted to learn more about Italian wine, and I wanted to learn more about French wine. And he probably needed the help. He was probably doing a lot of covers. Yeah. First night, training. Training night. 340 covers. We, we divided the dining room. He's like, you take station 456, I'll take 123, and we'll split the lounge. And I, was, I said, I don't know what station 456 is. He's right, like, it's right. the left side of the dining room. I was like, great. Unbelievable. I've never worked. Yeah, that was crazy. And at the highest level. But really amazing. And hitting it at that time. Crushing it. And I mean, now there's a great team of four sommeliers. Back then, it was Jean-Luc, and he had two part-time assistants. I was one of them. And unbelievable. I remember there was a whole page on, of Rumier that he'd just gotten from Chateau Estates. And the prices, massive markups but still really small prices relative to the quality of the wines. And I, I thought to myself, I was one of the sommeliers that you hate when you're a wine director that is going to focus on one thing and just crush the whole wine page. So I did that. I learned about Burgundy through Christophe Rumier's eyes. And when I went to Burgundy for the first time, that's the first person, only person I visited. Um, what was that visit like? You know, Burgundy back then was, it, this is 2001. You know, there were maybe five sommeliers going there frequently. It was not what it is. It's not the amusement park. You're like, oh, it's now. Ned. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. oh, Daniel Jonas is here. Right. It's, oh, there's Raj. No, yeah, exactly. There were, there were, people weren't... Also, restaurants didn't give you travel expense budgets or there, there weren't junkets like there are today. You, If you were traveling in Europe, you were doing it on your own dime. I happened to be there for a friend's wedding and you know, I drove down, saw Christophe and Jean-Luc made the appointment for me because he knew how much I loved his wines and I'd been selling them and Try to get a bigger allocation from him. Exactly. While you're there, there, shake him down. (laughs) And Christoph spent the whole day. Uh, We walked through all the vineyards. I still have some pictures of that day. You know, the the different soil types in Bun Mar and something that you just think is the craziest thing that there's within an Appalachian of Bun Mar, there are completely diverse soils and how he vinifies them separately. And then you you taste them separately. Then you taste the blend of the two is just all these amazing things. And one day we're, 
that's really when you can fall in love. And it, it, that's another one of those days where it just flipped the switch. And, you know, people, people who don't know me well listening to this will think of me as Burgundy first, but it was certainly Italian wine that got me to Burgundy. And I think if I hadn't had the challenge of trying to learn about Italian wine pre-internet, pre like guild of quartermaster sommeliers, whatever website where you can like learn about everything and like with, you know, sitting in your chair. It was you and Burton Anderson. Exactly. Right. After night. That's it. And in not even the wine Atlas of Italy, you know, that was the most recent book published on Italy in 1990. You had to go back to his like 1978 vino book and you're reading 1998. You're reading a 20 year out of date book and that's the best shit you got. You know, it's crazy that that's where you had to learn. But having to go through the rigors of learning about Italian wine with very little information, there's so much information about Burgundy out there, but there's a lot of nuance. And when you start looking to Italian wine with a million different varietals that you can't pronounce, and you go to something really easy like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but all of the clean outs are so difficult, you're just exchanging complexity. So it was a fun kind of challenge to take on Burgundy and try to really to learn about it. And uh, I'm still trying. But it became kind of a signature thing for you, as you yeah. referred to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I learned a lot about Burgundy. I met Roy Welland. How'd you and Roy meet? I met Roy in passing at Nick and Tony's in East Hampton, where I, from 1999 to like 2010 or something, I did the wine list. But I worked on the floor from 99 to 04, every summer, Fridays and Saturday nights, where I met some of the most unbelievable people, the craziest stories. This is go time in the Hamptons. Go times in the Hamptons, Friday, Saturday, July 4th to Labor Day, full contact. And I met my first and closest now private client there. I met a lot of future investors of our restaurants and our other deals there. And uh, I met Roy there. And, but it was only in passing. He became friends with Jonathan Waxman, who was opening Washington Park. And I had briefly worked with Jonathan at Colina in between working at Babo and Lupa. And, and Jonathan said, you got to meet this guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we went to dinner at Danielle and... Jonathan likes wine. Jonathan likes wine. Jonathan likes all things nice. He's got good taste. He's been around the block. And Roy was his investor. Roy was an investor and really keen about wine and making a ton of money. He was an options trader before options software existed. And he could do all the calculations in his head. He's a brilliant mathematician. And... And he, he thought wine was undervalued. He was looking oh, at it and it oh, was yeah. like, well, are you serious with this? Exactly. These prices? He was and is a gambler, like in the best sense of that word, in that he would look at a, a trade and say, if, if it the trade's good for one, it's good for 100. And so when we were offered, I don't know, 96 Dom Perignon Rosé, and I would say, oh, we should buy like a couple of cases. He's like, well, how much can you get? I said, oh, I don't know. Can you get 100 cases? I would, Maybe 50. He said, all right, get 50 cases. And two pallets of Dom Perignon Rosé would arrive. And you would think to yourself, this is the craziest craziest thing. Or not, 71 Latash at auction. There are five cases in a parcel. You bought the first one. He goes, well, if you bought the first, why aren't you buying the other four? And you would think, well, because I don't, ha- I don't have $100,000, Roy. That's why I don't buy all five. And he would just say, oh, no, buy all five. It's- Stop thinking like a poor person, Robert. Exactly. <laughs> and as a result, we, ha- we started to build what became the wine collection at Crew. And... Bought a lot of wine overseas, a lot of wine at auction, and we went from. I met Roy at five thousand bottles of wine when we closed Crew. I think we had one hundred and sixty-five thousand after selling a lot of wine, drinking mostly a lot of wine. And Richard Luftick was there, and John Silver was there. You know, that was the best thing about. I think that's the best thing about our business, about our career, is that over time you do it long enough, you get to spend time with and a lot of time. 
you know, you spend a lot more time with your coworkers than you do with your family in the restaurant business. And so I got to spend about three lifetimes sitting next to John Slover in the office at Crew. One of the best floor sommeliers I've ever seen. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, Raj Veda and, and Michel Kuvru, the guy who can, who can assess where a table wants to go with wine in eight, 10 seconds. He knows before that guy puts the wine list down what he is going to aspire to order. And he is unbelievable, a real pro. And a, in every level of pro, he could, be, he could be the maitre d', he could be the sous chef, he could be the sommelier, and he could be the captain. In fact, he could run a restaurant, just, he could do everything. If he, if he had one table, he could do everything. He, he's an amazing, amazing guy to watch work. Humbling, humbling to be the, you know, quote unquote, like boss of a guy like Michel Kubru. Pretty good taster. Great. Everything about Michel. Like unbelievable, an ability to devour work, tireless. But more than anything, his his read, his gut instinct about a table, is otherworldly, and that's it's why when you see a guy like that not succeed in some parts of the wine world, you start to question the veracity of that test, right? And you know, obviously, I'm talking about. He, you know, Michel tried and tried and tried again to pass the MS and he never succeeded. And God, I thought to myself, this guy can't pass. I don't know how anyone does. He's the, he's the best I've seen. I've seen a lot of great guys and women. It's unreal. So yeah, so that was hard. It's hard, hard to see someone like that. And I, a bunch of friends, I can, I, can, I can list a bunch of people who I saw go through the, that, that trial and uh, that, are, that are great. Scott Tyree, one of the best sommeliers I, I'd ever seen work in Chicago. Never passed. And I thought, wow, this, this, this is not for me. But I have a lot of respect for the court. I have a lot of respect for the people who are going through it. And then the people who pass, they've committed a ton of their time. I can tell you firsthand, I am a court-battered spouse. My wife has been going through the court for a few years now, and I don't envy anyone who's taking on that role. It is, it's a real commitment. And I tip my hat to the people who are engaged in that. It's just not for me. I don't, it's, you know, I, I, if you think back to who were the superstar sommeliers of the 90s in New York City, Michel, Jean-Luc Ledoux, Daniel Jonas, Tim Kopeck, a bunch of these guys. And back then it was guys, you know, truthfully, they were, they were Jonas. I'm, I'm just trying to think of a whole, who these people were, right? And huge people in the industry, none of them passed any test. They, they were they were great, and maybe could, would they have been better at their job? Possibly, yeah, maybe. Um, but well, they, they passed the test of the table, right? The yeah, cut, that's the, it. Yeah, the, you know, and and so I so I never thought at the time that that's the that's the way to be a sommelier. I know that wasn't a part of the New York culture in the '90s. Now it really is, and I think people like you know John Reagan and Lormanic and people that are bringing a lot of people through the court and hiring a lot of court members in their programs is only kind of building a better court of master sommeliers. I think it's actually gotten a lot better, a lot richer than when you and I started in the, in the wine business in, in New York. The person who gives out the job gets to determine how important it is. You know what I mean? For sure. For sure. And that's, that's fair, right? Though, you know, Grant at Charlie Bird is past his advance. You know, Arvid is taking the, whatever the best sommelier in the world competition next year. And he'll probably, he, I imagine if he takes the, 
the MS test, he'll do fine. He's a real scholar. So it's not like I don't, I wouldn't hire MS guys. I, I, I would for sure. Cause there's some, you'd like a little street smarts too. You'd like a little attention I, to things. Yeah. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I think that if I had to choose between street smarts and book smarts, I take street smarts in almost everything every day. Cause you came up that way, right? I came up that way. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. You know, you, you, you know, you cover what you know, and I know learning wine from books, but I really know wine from trial by fire by being at the table and like trying to describe something that is completely foreign to someone. Try to describe Valentini Trebbiano to a person who only drinks California Chardonnay. And that's the closest thing that you're going to be able to get on an, you know, and that's, that's an important skill. And, I, and then unfortunately, that's a skill that can't be tested. You can't administer an exam where that skill is really, um, yeah, I, I think that that table side skill is the most important thing, much more important than wine knowledge, much more important than decanting skills. And not that nothing, not that anything isn't important, but the, the connection that, with a guest is the most important thing. So Washington Park becomes crew, and in terms of table side, I mean... Robert Bohr was eating it up, bro. I remember watching you tableside at Crew. Man, you loved being tableside. I love it. I still love it. I was fortunate, and I don't want anyone to think that I don't value the opportunity there or ever or anywhere. I really felt Roy had given me an opportunity to build the wine program of my dreams. What did I care about? What did I want to buy? What did I want to defend? What did I want to highlight? And we had the ability to have everything. Why so much trust at a young age for you? I mean, Roy is not young, but I mean, why you? You know, I, I wish I, I wish I could tell you, but I, I think what he taught me is what I'm, I'm trying to live now. And, and that is find good people that you trust, give them a chance and empower them and, and, and be generous. And Roy was, so, so, so generous with me. And I, as I have a little bit more to offer, I try to bring other people in and, and share my good fortune with them. Because I think you've always been good about that. That's been part of your success, I think, is you built a crew and you looked out for them. Yeah, I tried because someone looked after me. And I think that Roy giving me that trust and a lot of people giving me a lot of opportunity that I, maybe on paper I shouldn't have gotten or I didn't get there by by birthright or class, but I got there. I mean, you're not French, right? I'm you're not, not, you don't have the accent. I'm you don't necessarily have the look. You're Jersey. Jersey. I, I grew up in a very modest blue collar way and no one really drinks wine. My parents don't drink wine and we didn't come part of the culture, a dining culture. But so when Roy gave me this opportunity, we were able to really learn about wine, great wine, you know, wines you read about, vintages you read about. I wonder what, 29 Latour tastes like versus 59 Latour. Well, let's open them and let's talk about it. And he was all for it. You know, the speed bump wine for Roy was 71 Latash before he would drink a magnum of 85 Jaiyashizo. These are, I'm not just like name dropping. That You can ask Ned, that happened many times. He'd be like, oh, the Jaiye is closed. We need a speed bump. And I knew speed bump meant go get a bottle of 71 Latash. And, and that's how Roy, and he, was, and he invited sommeliers and chefs and people who loved wine over and just, 
he was so generous with, with so many people. And he would host wine dinners in the private room, at, first at Washington Park and then at, at Crew. For if winemakers were in town, he would he would say, "Let's organize a dinner and we'll open anything you want that you think they want to try." And it was a crazy time. So then it became like a vicious cycle. What did I, there would be a 49 JG Prue Mauchelaise at auction. I would love to try that wine. I imagine Jean-Marc Rouleau would love to try that wine the next time he's in town, blah, blah, blah. And as a result, the opportunity to taste wine was insane, just insane, inconceivable by today's standards. And it also seems like at that time, or maybe before, you really said, I'm going to start developing relationships with growers and producers. Yeah, I mean, if you have, if it's a luxurious position to be in, if you, if you can get it, take it. And having a platform where you had a partner, a boss, a benefactor who really encouraged that, who really asked you to, to invite these people in and throw a great party for them at his expense. I, you know, I, I'm, I am where I am today in the wine world because of, because of Roy. And where do you think that was coming from? I mean, Roy was an orphan. Yeah, not an orphan. No, he 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 uh, he left home early because he uh, I don't know exactly why, but he left and he lived. He like literally lived on the streets in the real sense of the word. He learned how to take care of himself. He's a very very quick study. He's an incredibly sharp mind, but he can he can assess probability better than anyone. And so he was able to really play cards for a living and did well. And that he lost. played professional bridge. He still plays professional bridge, but he, before professional bridge, he played backgammon for money or three card Monty kind of stuff. I mean, like crazy. Well, he's really an, an incredible guy that way. So someone who, someone who didn't have a, a lot of trust in others had so much trust in me in this, in, in this world. So yeah, I'm, I, Again, Roy's the best man of our wedding, you know? So there's a picture of me, with John Sexton, my grandfather, Roy, and my dad. It was, that's it. I think the relationship with Jordan was really important to you from the minute it happened, right? Yeah, I, mean, I met Jordan April of 2003. I remember because it was at WD-50. She was a host and working in, she just finished college and was um, working to be a uh, food writer. And she was working at WD-50, and I loved, I worked for Wiley Dufresne briefly at 71 Clinton. So I took a little sabbatical from Restaurant Danielle to go down and work with him to see if I could, we, we had the chemistry where we could open a restaurant together. We had been friends through his girlfriend at the time, Liz Ouellette, and I loved working with Wiley. And so the idea was I was going to open WD-50 with him, Delays kind of caused, didn't allow it to happen just because there's too many time delays and I needed a job. But we kept in touch and I learned so much from Wiley. I learned uh, the guy spends weeks preparing for a dish. He makes every permutation and combination possible. He puts them together, tastes them all, and then decides which is the best of them. And along the way, he asks your opinion and what do you think wine's going to go with it? Where does wine fit in this relationship with the dish? Is this too strong for this kind of wine? He's super curious about the impact of food and wine together. I, I loved that time that I spent with him. So I really thought I could open WD-50. Anyway, 
he puts in a lot of effort to make it look easy, which is kind of your style, right? Robert, yeah. That's the Robert signature, I think. I mean, I've seen you plan a wine dinner. I know how you do it. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, there are people who have, who have natural abilities, and then there are people who work really hard. And I work really hard. And maybe that was a connection with Roy as well. Yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, Humble Roots. You know, because you're around some people who, who are just encyclopedic knowledge, who have God-given palates, like really impeccable tasting ability. And, and you're around them. You're, it's hard to not be awed by that, right? And if you don't have that stuff, you got to like, you have to have something else to, to play in this game in New York. And, and so I, for me, it was always real hard work a lot of time. And so Wiley did that. You know, I never, I never got to watch Danielle create a dish, but I got to watch Wiley create a dish, and I couldn't be more impressed. And uh, I wanted to work with him, but l- luckily our friendship put me in a position to meet Jordan, who was working there, and I went there before it opened. We were talking about a book that she was reading or something. I was definitely not. I you weren't listening. <laughs> you were just looking. I didn't, you know, I didn't, this was a, a big move. I didn't think I had the kind of game to step to a, a, a woman as beautiful as Jordan. And so I don't know where I got the, the moxie, but I, I stepped up and I was persistent and I imagine she was well courted and she was beautiful and nice and sincere and engaging. And But you pulled out all the stops. You're calling up Mario for the late night at the upstairs at Babo, the, yeah. the imaginary floor and all like of that stuff. John George seating us at our, on our like fourth date and cooking our dinner and like, like really that was, thank you. Wyla, that was you all the stops, you know, I invited her to like travel and do all this crazy stuff. And, and she moved to Colorado. So we had a two year kind of sabbatical. I didn't see her for a couple of years. We, we kept in touch, but then she went to cooking school and she needed, needed her internship or externship, whatever. I don't actually know the difference between those things. And, um, I helped her with some connections at restaurant Danielle and Gramercy and La and a few places where we, I knew the chefs and she really liked working at Danielle. So she was a cook at Danielle, and where you got to know her, I believe you worked together at that time. She was nice enough to say hello. As a kind of stagiaire in the kitchen at Danielle, you probably, that's a big commitment of time, just saying hello, because you're in the weeds the whole day. And she worked, yeah, we got to, we got to uh, get to know each other a little bit. And she made the transition to the front of the house and picked my brain, had a million questions, and, and it was great. And she, uh, and you could mentor somebody. You could bring somebody along. You could help someone's career. Yeah, and at, at the time, I didn't know what it would turn into. I can't. It's hard to, at the time, for me to envision where Jordan is today. At that time, would it, not inconceivable, but you know, I knew she was driven. I knew she was intelligent, and she had a lot of passion. But how that unfolds in such a quick time, it's amazing to me. How you go from being kind of a stagiaire cook to a wine director in a number of years in New York is it's the, it's the great, one of the great things about our business, right? Um, yeah, it's, she is very, very, very impressive. very impressive. So you get married and did that start a new chapter for you? It did start a new chapter. We got married in August 30th, 2008, sadly two weeks before the world economic crisis which had a big effect on you a big effect on us you know our check average at crew is i don't know 250 280 a person how much do you spend on a honeymoon <laughs> we spent a lot of money on our wedding we had you know the world was you know it got bigger and bigger and frothier and frothier you know we thought the end could never come 
but it did. And uh, yeah, and it definitely changed our dynamics at, at crew. Our, you know, spending money on fancy wine was very out of fashion. Not just people didn't want to do it. It was morally out of fashion. More, you, you, yeah, there was operation. You, you would be looked down upon. People who were bulletproof had billions of dollars. Yeah, sure, they lost some money. They were bulletproof. We're drinking $100 bottles of wine, which you know a month before would be drinking a $2,000 bottle of wine, simply because they didn't want to be seen living it up. Because you know, there's a lot of intertwined businesses. If you're a hedge fund manager taking care of all these people's money, and you're fine, but all these people lost all their fortunes and you're drinking a $2,000 bottle of wine in public. It's a bad sign. And the Madoff thing had just happened. And that was, that really, that was the, that was, that was the death knell that really crushed people's spirit more than anything. And what was the next thing that was going to happen? Um, people thought there was going to be more Madoffs down the line. Yeah. Banks were going to close, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, banks did close, right? Banks did close. Yeah. And a lot of, and, you know, the financial industry likes to drink wine at fancy restaurants, as we all know. And when that became taboo, you know, we, we suffered, for sure. And uh, we, Roy, to his credit, you know, lost a bunch of money keeping the restaurant open at, the, at a high level. No one got fired. We didn't reduce staff. We didn't reduce payroll. We bought a lot of wine in the fall of 2008, actually. A lot, because the prices were nothing. And, uh, but... For a year of that not rebounding, it takes its toll. And uh, I end up leaving crew a little bit, a little over a year later, to, uh, which was tough, really hard. But I, I mean, that was probably the toughest thing that had happened to you in your career. First huge setback, it right? Was, yeah, a huge setback. I, you know, it was my choice, but I, cho- I, I knew I had to do something because it was a top-heavy company. We, we had a lot of big salaries, a lot of we had a lot of talent. Raj Veda left to go work at Danielle. Michel Kourou was still there. He was. He would then leave to go to Per Se. I left to go work for Tom Clicchio and his restaurant group, and did that for a little, for a little while. While uh, while talking to Ryan Hardy about opening a restaurant in New York, and you had met him in Colorado. I had met him in Colorado. He was a champ for our wedding. He had a farm outside of Aspen where he asked Jordan what kind of vegetables would she want grown specifically for our wedding dinner. And so Ryan was, he did all of the raw and crudo and raw bar and all this crazy food at our wedding. and Couldn't have been cooler about it. And Jordan and I, as a thank you, got him dinner at Alinea because he'd said he had never been. And he turned it into, well, let's make it a double date. So we went, four of us had dinner at Chicago and so it was the first time we were at over dinner at Alinea. Did he talk about wanting to move from Aspen and how the town was getting too small and how he really wanted to kind of spread his wings and he was talking about San Francisco. It's kind of inevitably, I'm going to go to San Francisco or I'm going to go to New York. I hear this all the time from wine people or chefs in other cities. I'm going to San Francisco or I'm going to New York. And uh, so, well, if you want to come to New York, let me know. We'll figure something out. And uh, I don't know, two years later or something, he said, all right, I'm moving. And I was still working at Clickio. And uh, it took us a while. It took us over a year to find a space. It's hard, you know. Economics of opening a restaurant are really tough. Everyone knows that, especially in New York. And finding the right rent, the right deal was tough. And But we found it. We really, really fortunate to find Charlie Bird. And that's been a blast, Charlie Bird. A real, you know, it's 
people, I have this other business where it's like wine consulting. I do all this like cool, fun travel shit with, you know, wealthy guys. And my friends were like, why would you want to go back into the restaurant business? It's, I think a lot of people ask you that. A lot. And it, I don't think it made sense. And when I would, I would say, because I really love being in the restaurant. I really love serving wine. I really want to be table side. People thought it was a line. It was like, it was a, that's of, a nice thing to say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's going to look good in the headline. Right. That's mark. It's marketing, but it was, it is true. And, um, however much I like drinking seven to Latash, I also want to know what is 2013 like in Liguria. But it's also like, if you're sitting at home, it's, there's no party, right? right. Like restaurants bring the party to you. Yeah. yeah it's great. It's yeah. happening. You know? Oh, it's so much fun. I, I you know, I, it'd be hard to believe that I won't be somehow involved in restaurants forever. I just love being in the restaurant. I like talking to guests. I like welcoming people in. Actually, I, I like passing along the information that's been given to me by, by really smart students of hospitality. But I also think you like blowing it up a little bit. You're uh, like, oh, well, here's a level. Let's increase it a couple, and we're going to put it in front of you. I mean, I've, oh, you know, sure, that's sure. part I of also, the thing. I have to say, I have strong opinions. I think that there are there are right ways to do things, and I think there are a lot of places that do it wrong. And so, to have a spot where you can say, "All right, this is what I believe," you you can disagree. That's fine, but I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm not just saying glassware is important or wine service temperature is important or tasting wine before service, serving it is important, or having a well-priced wine list is important, or being friendly and nice and engaging and not snobby and are important values, or that the, the, fr- the person at the front door shouldn't just be like typing away at the screen telling you that you can't sit for three hours without even engaging you. You can have those beliefs, but if you don't activate them, you're just like the angry guy in the street. Yeah, like, exactly. you people doing it all wrong. If I did it, it would be different. And Trumpers not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's definitely a reflection of what I what I value and what Ryan values. And we thought that seems to have been successful. No, I mean people come yeah, to this restaurant much more than we had anticipated, to be honest. And I think I think people in all areas respond to authenticity. And I think I think Charlie Bird is authentic because it's it, it may not be the most fashionable. It may not be the most cutting edge, but it's authentic. It really reflects our values. And when we're there, we're talking to the staff, we're talking to our wine team, we're talking to the cooks. It, it's coming from a place of, of real passion and, and real belief that we think you should treat people well because it's important. But what happened to the wise-ass Robert that, you know, used to be around. I mean, how did you fit that into the, <laughs> um, I mean, how do you think you fit it in? Let me ask you that question. It comes out, your personality comes out when you're at tables and I heard this and I, I wish I knew who, who coined this phrase, but I heard it and I kind of adopted it as my own that celebrities like to be treated like regular people and regular people like to be treated like celebrities. So, you know, Phil wealthy person for celebrity, it's kind of the same thing, right? And so when I'm around, I'm fortunate that I have a lot of access to people with you know, a lot of opportunities. I mean, right, Robert? Yeah. I mean, that seems like you've uh, redefined that as a sommelier uh, yeah. thing, as possible. It I mean, me. more than anyone in the history of wine, Robert, since the medieval times. I mean, come on. <laughs> no. No, no, really. I think 
people respond to authenticity. People know that I really like what I do and I really care and I really, really do love the wines I'm talking about, whether I have a financial stake in it or not. I make no money by saying, you should really love Russo. No shit. But it's great, blah, blah, blah. I have no financial gain in that. So when you're around people who see passion, authenticity, I think it's, it's infective. But come on, Robert. What? You're not answering the question. Oh, I don't know the Why question. are you so successful blowing down with private collectors? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, when did you realize it was important? I met, I met a guy named Noam Gottesman in 1999 at Nick and Tony's. And uh, he was a great customer over the summer. He lived in London at the time. He had a house in the Hamptons and in... Uh, summer of 2001 he asked me to come over for lunch and it was because he had served him wine every you know every time he came in and loved it and i always turned him on to something new first wine I ever served him was phelps insignia 1977 next wine was like 85 giacosa red label it's like the late 90s he never heard of it he never heard of phelps he never heard of isley he never heard of any of these things and jeff salloway and i can notice had one-off bottles here or there that i could just take and open them whenever i wanted for the right customer and one guest had given me a bottle of $19.93 Valle Cabernet as a gift, as a thank you for whatever. Next time Noam came in with his wife, he said, you know, I'd like to drink a, you know, whatever you think. And I gave him the bottle of $19.93 Valle. And I think they were really good back then. And, um, and I gave it to him as a gift because he had always been generous with me. And, um, and he said, no, no, you have to charge me for the wine. I said, I can't charge you for the wine because it was a gift to me. I can't make money off of it. You've been always so generous. And I just wanted to pay you back. He said, what are you doing for lunch tomorrow? I said, nothing. But I had been invited to a bunch of rich guys' houses for lunch. And I was always like, this is, you know, this guy's different, but he's a rich guy. And I'm going to go to lunch. And I'm going to have to tell him how important his wine cellar right. is. And, how great he and, is. And, yeah. Admire things. That's nice. Like, yeah. That's also nice. Well, great. And that's kind of boring, quite frankly. Everyone who like reads Wine Spectator and buys the top wines and puts them in the wine cellar and then tells you how what a smart buyer they're because they bought ninety seven Brunello de Montalcino. You've got to be impressed by that. I'm not impressed by that. So anyway, go to his house. It is perfectly understated. Everything about it's beautiful. There's nothing garish or you know. There's no McMansion. It's it's got really elegant taste. Go to his wine cellar. It just has Bordeaux in it. And he says, "This is all we drink in London." Which is why when I come in, I want to drink Italian or American because I don't. It, I would love for you to help me fill this with wines that, like the wines you've served me at Nick and Tony's. And I thought, oh, okay. A month later, <laughs> you know, our world kind of ends, right? It's September 11th. I lose my job at Danielle because they close for lunch. I have nothing kind of lined up because I was doing this kind of short-term thing at 71 Clinton. The wine guy comes back. I have no job. And so I spent all of my time Building Gnome's wine cellar. He gives me fifty thousand dollars. He's like, he wires me fifty grand. He goes, go to auction, buy some wine. Now the wine, you know, wine auctions and full of stuff. Of full of stuff back then. October two thousand one. So I bought seventy five thousand dollars worth of wine, and I sent him an email. I said, I'm you know, sorry, the wine dealers were so good. I the opportunity was so good, I couldn't turn it down. I need twenty five thousand more dollars, and. uh, Wires it, no questions asked. He hasn't seen a single bottle. 
He doesn't really know me at all. Comes November for Thanksgiving, back to Hamptons, goes in the wine cellar, and it's, I, I, I bought a, I had a handmade leather portfolio, like really understated, printed out like a wine list with bin numbers and the whole thing. And his friend who really loves wine comes over and goes, wow, you, you actually now have a real serious wine cellar. What, what happened? He goes, oh, I met this guy and blah, blah, blah. Calls me on Thanksgiving. He says, I just want to thank you. You put together an unbelievable thing for me. I'm really grateful. I said, oh, it's great. And he said, how do I pay you? And I said, oh, um, I don't know. I, I never thought of it. And he said, typically what I do is I just, you know, my art guys get, get some percentage. My furniture guys get some percentage. I'll just give you a percentage of the thing. And I thought, that doesn't seem fair. The day I spent wine, you know, I bought $50,000 at wine auction. I didn't earn $5,000 that day. I said, why don't we do this? How about I determine what my time is worth and you can just pay me for that time. And he said, and it was maybe a quarter of what he would have given me if it had been a percentage. And uh, he said, I don't really think that that's fair to you. I said, no, I, I think it's, it's actually, it's, it's pretty right on. You know, I'd never made a lot of money. So to make 1500 bucks was like real money, you know? And so that was the first time I started with a client and he told everybody that he knew about it. And so he would fly me over to London, introduce me to his wine friends or his hedge fund guys, and they would have me build wine cellars for them. And they would say, oh, they'd say, just tell me what I have in here that's not good and what should I buy and what should I not buy. And 27 years old? Like, what? I'm like, it's the craziest thing. I'm, I'm in these $50 million homes with a million dollars of junk in the wine cellar. And I'm like, you just, just give all this to your staff and I'll send you 10 cases of wine. And, and I don't know how it happened. It just happened. And word got around, what got around, got around. And he kept introducing him to these people. And it got to be so big that I had to take on two partners and start a wine consulting actual company. And, you know, this was around the time when La Palais was coming into New York. And a lot of people were being introduced to these wines for the first time. And I th there was a lot of interest in Burgundy after, you know, in the early 2000s. Not like it is now, but it started to catch fire a little bit. But you could still buy, you know, we bought Jaye for nothing relatively a case for what a bottle's worth now. And we bought cases of seven Latash. We bought, this is the parcel we bought five cases that there were $1,300 a bottle. Now it's six grand. So, you know, in any case, so at the time there was still an opportunity to buy really, really great world-class blue chip wine. We're not a big number, right? You know, especially in relation to what 2000 Bordeaux futures were trading for. And you'd be like, really you can drink, Young Bordeaux for the same price as 71 Latash? Like, really? I'm, that's kind of an easy one for me. So I think there were a lot of people looking at the market that way and the inefficiency of the market. When I would explain the inefficiency of the wine market to these really smart financial bankers, they, they actually, I think they thought I was lying because they're like, nothing is this inefficient. And it was. And now it's much less inefficient, obviously. But we bought a lot of wine. What's next for Robert to conquer? I mean, what's, <laughs> what's the next... You know, I have to say, I like kind of doing what I'm doing right now. I really like working with Grant and Arvid at, at Charlie Bird. And we have um, on the wine team, and we started our own business, actually a, a kind of a spinoff of that wine consulting company that I started in the back with uh, Dave Beckwith, who's like born to be a consultant. The guy's like perfect for that job. So he has a bunch of clients. And we so we spun off and just kept a small group of guys. So 
Grant, Arvin, and I both work at Charlie Red and in our own company. So we're, we kind of keep that small, really only five clients that we work with. And we're going to open another restaurant in Nolita. But I would like to continue to have a, to work with people I'm really, uh, really inspired by. Guys like Ryan and Arvid and Grant. And we just brought Daniel Bruxed from Pizza Locali in Boulder, another Bobby Stuckey disciple. So if I could continue to do that, I'd be happy. And, you know, the near future is fatherhood. That'll be probably even more terrifying than opening a New York City restaurant. Have you told your grandfather that he's going to be a great-grandfather? Yeah. Robert Bohr is about to be a father. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me, Levy. I really appreciate it. Episode 300 with Robert Bohr of Charlie Bird and Grand Cru Selections. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe, on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.